who is the person who says, yeah, I want to be the research assistant who has to go around and find gum sitting on the ground and scrape it up and keep it? Do you think it's a choice or do you think it's a some research assistant low in the hierarchy? Like, I have a job for you this week. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by the heat. Nick, it is what, 120 degrees in here? Yeah, we are, we are doing the podcast version of hot yoga this episode, so I hope everyone is, is uh, feeling comfortable at home because we are steamed out here. So I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health from the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am joined once again by Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health here at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Jess. Thanks, Matt. And we have a special guest today, Dr. Colette Mube, also from the Department of Epidemiology with me here at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Colette. Thank you, Matt. And as a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. And another reminder, if you could go onto your iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast app and give us a rating, we would greatly appreciate it. And another reminder, so at Population Health Exchange website, if you go to that, registration is open for our Winter Institute. And also, Nick would very much like you to know that tickets are now available for the Health in Focus Film Festival, December 1st through 3rd. And those are open to the public. Those are public health films, several features and a couple of blocks of shorts. So I think that's going to be really exciting. I, I think you should all rush out and get your tickets for that. And as a reminder, we are once again continuing on our podcast series of episodes related to the strategic research directions. So those are our five strategic areas at the BU School of Public Health. So we've got cities and health, climate, the planet and health, infectious diseases, mental health, and behavioral health, and health inequities, which we are going to be talking about today. So now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to be looking at a study on experiences of racism in New Zealand. And then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about what it's like working on disparities. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into things that make us laugh out loud, or we just want to talk about. Okay, so in segment one, we are getting into an article that looked at experiences of racism in New Zealand. It was published in The Lancet and entitled Flexible Resources and Experiences of Racism Among Multi-Ethnic Adolescent Population in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I, I apologize if I have said that incorrectly. An intersectional analysis of health and socioeconomic inequities using survey data by first author Rachel Simon Kumar of the Center for Asian and Ethnic Minority Health Research and Evaluation at the Waipapa Taumata Rao University of Auckland in New Zealand. This one was one that we were interested in, so I don't have any headlines for this, but Jess, can you talk us through what they did? This was a study that included a lot of different exposures and looked at things in a really interesting way. So can you talk us through what they did? Sure. This was, as Matt was alluding to, this was kind of a beast of a paper in good ways, in many, many good ways, yeah. and also in ways that were complex. So this paper takes place broadly in the context of looking at experiences of racism as exposures in relation to health-related endpoints, and specifically looking at intersections of race and ethnicity alongside socioeconomic and income factors and perceived whiteness as a particular exposure as well and various health endpoints. 
So just in backing up with a little bit of context, obviously racial or ethnic identity is not experienced monolithically by all people so identified. And the authors discuss how variations specifically in income and wealth, countries of origin, specifically high or low income of origin, for example, experience with migration and immigration status and perceived whiteness can all play a role in the experience of race and ethnicity for different people. There is some in the research community who claim in many ways that it is income and economics, not race, that drives health disparities seen among people of color, for example, and others who say no, that it is structural racism that's driving economic inequities. And so there is this bi-directional argument in the literature around looking at exposures of race and health in many ways. And what these authors attempted to do was to extract socioeconomic status in some ways through a mediation analysis to examine the relationship between race, ethnicity, and a series of endpoints and considering income among other factors as potential mediators. So this paper is focused on adolescents in New Zealand, which is an increasingly diverse country, specifically with a large indigenous Maori population, as well as recent and established immigrant communities from the Pacific Islands, East Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and Europe. New Zealand, and thinking of the history of New Zealand, is a British former colony, as we know, with a mixed history of racial relations and actually some interesting distinctions between the colonial experience in the United States and in New Zealand, Mm -hmm. specifically because the white European settlers, who they call Pakeha in New Zealand, signed a series of treaties with the Maori that granted them some semblance of ownership over land and environmental resources, but very quickly kind of backtracked on those agreements, those signed agreements. And there was a tremendous amount of racism in the early years of the kind of forming of New Zealand as a country. There's been dramatic migration to New Zealand in recent years, which these authors highlight. In 2018, more than a quarter of the population was born overseas. New Zealand has a population of about 4.7 million people, and Maori account for approximately 16% of the population. The Pakeha white European descendant population is about 70%, and the remainder are other minority groups. So the authors here specifically are looking at the intersectionality between what they term quote unquote, flexible resources and experiences of racism among youth in New Zealand across multiple identities. So they define flexible resources in two core ways. The first flexible resource is they they term structural, which largely relates to wealth and income and being from a high income country or levels of neighborhood deprivation, these kind of income and socioeconomic status related factors. And the other flexible resource that they focus on is called embodiment which they define as perception as white or non-white, kind of your phenotype as it relates to white status. So the authors consider both of these flexible, these types, these kind of buckets of flexible resources as potential mediators of the relationship between race and ethnicity and a series of endpoints, including household deprivation, mental health endpoints, experiences of discrimination and access to healthcare as just an example of the few endpoints they were looking at. And the flexible resources in their conceptual framework could be protective of the connection between racism and some of these negative endpoints, for example, such as high income or white appearing, or can serve as risk factors for and kind of relate to more negative impact. The data that they used in this study came from a study called the Youth 2000 Survey, which was conducted in New Zealand from 2001 to 2019 and involved a representative sample of adolescents in New Zealand, ages 13 to 17, and the students provided self-reported data at school through a computer program. They used generalized linear models to consider the relationship between race, ethnicity, migration status, and various endpoints 
and then adjusting for the potential mediating effects of these flexible resources that they that I talked about earlier. So their respondents included more than 20,000 youth who provided responses to the survey during this study period. And just to note that it was not necessarily the same youth providing the data at multiple time points. At each year, the data was collected cross-sectionally. And their findings indicated that Maori and who they termed the racialized migrants, so these were migrants who did not identify as perceived white, but were non-white. So the Maori and the racialized migrants from low and middle income countries experienced the highest level of socioeconomic inequities. And the racialized migrant youth in particular experienced persistent socioeconomic inequalities across three generations. And this was one of their interesting findings that they also, in addition to reporting migration status and immigration status, they also asked about family history and when that child's family migrated to New Zealand. And they were seeing specifically among uh, respondents from the Pacific Islands that there were persistent socioeconomic inequalities viewed across multiple generations. Minorities perceived as white, so those who had that quote-unquote embodiment of, of white appearance, experienced less discrimination and had more socioeconomic and other advantages than their racialized peers in the terminology of these authors. And interestingly, the embodiment resources, so the perception of being white, mediated but did not fully eliminate the disparities in socioeconomic status and experiences of discrimination or disparities in health. And structural resources, so wealth, mediated these relationships as well, but less strongly. And trend analysis indicated consistently or increasing inequities over time on the basis of these race and ethnicity variables, suggesting, unfortunately, things are not improving over time. So this was my summary of this beast of a really fascinating paper. Yeah, I mean, so when you say, I mean, so this was a paper that contained so much data that in some ways it was it was sort of hard to distill down into a, a simple message, but I think they did a I think they did a a reasonable job of going through all this information. Clint, I wanted to get your take on this, with particular focus on the idea here of these two different types of resources: so structural resources and embodiment resources. Are these terms that are are kind of standard, or are these, as far as you know, concepts that they were using in this particular analysis, and how do we, how we think about those? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Actually, I had similar question. Okay, like good. The, <laughs> the phrasing is not one I'm accustomed to, but yeah. certainly I can see the rationale behind their choice. In thinking about the flexible resources being structural, right, I think certainly they could be a longer list of more structural determinants. Even the structures, when it comes to, for example, employment, they listed education as one, right? There's certainly other structural resources yep. as well in yep. other domains other than employment or the workforce or education and so on and so forth. And then also coming to embodiment, that, that was interesting, actually. Their, their definition, I was not familiar, familiar with that yeah. Um, yeah. As, a, as a description, but even in thinking about that and also thinking about their framework for it as a, as a mediator, having embodiment or perception of whiteness as a mediator, it, it's interesting, right, to, to think about that as a mediator between race, ethnicity, and whatever the outcomes are. Sorry, can I, and when you say interesting, interesting in that it's a different way of thinking about it, or do you have concerns about that from a, an analytic standpoint? Because I have, yes, I go in both directions. Yeah, yeah I have questions. It's yeah. more curiosity, yeah, yeah. I think, from the conceptual, right, and then it's and then questions about it 
analytically. Yeah. So what does it mean for the perception of whiteness to be a mediator? And then it's, I think, which is where I would love to know more about maybe the literature behind this, like the definitions, like where, what disciplines do they come from? And like being able to read some of that work, I think would be helpful. That would be enlightening, I think. But analytically, then that that's where I have maybe concerns slash questions. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're not alone. I mean, and just for anyone in the audience who not familiar with sort of thinking about mediation, by mediation, we're essentially saying that the exposures that we're talking about here have effects on outcomes mediated through these pathways that we can try to understand from a statistical standpoint. So say say more about what your concerns are and I'll I'll, I'll see if we see if we share them. If we align, yes. yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So just an initial one is that just thinking about so so the racial and ethnic categories that they identify here in in what way would they determine the perception of whiteness? Right. It's almost like the there's the perception of whiteness. There's the race ethnicity. Yep. Right. Is there really this ordering? Right becomes the question. Would you know? Does one affect or determine the other? Is is more the question that I have conceptually and analytically. I don't know what was your yeah. No, it's exactly the same thing. I mean, some of these I actually have questions of, of could they actually be a mediator? So they they have a, a DAG, a causal diagram. It's a it's a very simple one. I think just meant to really illustrate mediation because they don't include the confounding pathways, which I would have liked to see, but okay, fine. They're, they're, they're being clear in what they're trying to do. So in the pathway between ethnicity and these, you know, economic and health and interpersonal outcomes, they have deprivation, migrant generation, income level of country of origin and perceived ethnicity. Okay. So I can understand some of them, uh, income of income level of country of origin that's not probably really a mediator, but it's a proxy for income. Mm. So there could be a mediating pathway, but it's probably not that simple, right? It's probably a confounding pathway as well. I mean, you'd have to be more detailed in how you got from something like income to ethnicity, but I suspect mm. there are common causes that would get you there. Mm. Migrant generation though, I mean, that seems to be a case where you're not actually looking at something as a proxy. You actually care about migrant generation. How does ethnicity affect migrant generation. Mm-hmm. To me, that sounds like more like a moderator, you know, that the effects of ethnicity would be different depending on the generation. Mm-hmm. You know, let me be clear. I, I, I'm, there are aspects of this paper I have sort of analytic quibbles with. Overall, I generally think the results fit with what I would expect. That doesn't make them right, but they do fit with what I expect. My concerns are really just sort of about getting the ordering right. Mm-hmm. They're not really with the overall result, but yeah. What, 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 What's your reaction to that? My reaction, yes. I mean, there's, you know, as I alluded to earlier, it's more the like the the conceptual, the theory aspect of it that's mm-hmm. informing the work. And then there are the questions about the analytics. And I think I'm not as clear on the alignment of the two, but certainly I think reading some of the work that obviously has shaped the perspectives and the interests of these authors would be helpful, right? So knowing more about that literature would Influence, like certainly, if I already had heard of the words, right, the structural and embodiment, the structural resources terminology, then that wouldn't be a question. So I think I have that additional learning process yeah. to do, and just understanding that, and then going on to the modeling to then figure out, okay, so in what situation would this really not be a mediator? Yeah, and I think then I would feel more able to 
constructively make suggestions regarding an analytic approach that maybe does or does not include the ones that they have in there. Absolutely. It is worth noting, they do actually say at one point in the paper, our mediation analysis use a deliberately simple exploratory approach to establish proof of concept. And to me, that's I, like, I don't, I don't completely think that's a free pass because the paper is largely designed to assess mediation. So to sort of say it's, it's sort of proof of concept strikes me as, you know, uh, I can't, I don't think I can totally give them a pass. On the other mm-hmm. hand, I, you know, I think it, to me, it's fine to say we're, we're trying to establish something. Uh, we would need more detail but they do then say our findings offer broad directions for policy and program interventions. So if if you're saying that, you are saying it's a little bit more than proof of concept. But okay, mm. that's that's probably a level of detail we don't need to get into. Just what 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 was your reaction to this? Well, it, there's many ways in you know where I really like this paper. It was very yeah. creative yeah. in terms of their thought process and in terms of just the sheer number of variables that they included in these different analyses and models. I mean, in looking at the manuscript, there's pages and pages of tables. There's tables that don't fit on a single page. And so it's spilling over both the descriptive tables and then also the tables with the, you know, adjusted, uh, adjusted coefficients. I I think beautifully um, colored, beautifully colored in the heat map kind of format. And actually the heat map format makes it easier to look at all the data visually because they present in red the it's odds ratios, right, that are mm-hmm. in excess. That's where they're saying they're um, increased, elevated compared to the Pakeha white baseline. Yep. And so that makes it easier to look at. But as, as a reader, my challenge of this paper, because I read them really closely to provide these summaries for yep. the podcast, it was very difficult for me to distill what were their core exposures, what were the mediating factors, what were the confounders that they considered, if any, what were the endpoints. And it seemed that at times some of the variables doubled as exposures and endpoints, depending on the analysis that they were looking at. Yeah. And it was conf- it was just confusing. Yeah. That was my challenge. I, I loved it in so many ways because it was especially the aspect of perceived whiteness that I think is is not as commonly included in these models. I don't exactly know how it was asked of, you know, the adolescents in this study, but it was standardized clearly across all, you know, the the multiple years. And so I I think just in reading it, I I found it a little confusing, but I did. It was a very, very interesting paper nonetheless. No, and I I agree. I mean, so we've got a paper that overall shows uh, a relationship between some aspects of uh, ethnicity and health and, and economic outcomes. Uh, some of them were not as clear. So they say, you know, we do not show a clear association between symptoms of depression and perceived whiteness, but they do find strong effects of migration generation having an effect on these outcomes. And second generation migrant youth, particularly Pacifica, are as vulnerable as first generation migrants. So, you know, a lot of things that they looked at, some of which they found, I don't know if we want to say effects or associations, I think probably we want to say associations. Some of which they didn't, and it's it's very broad, and I think that's probably quite commendable. But you know, at the same time, it isn't clear to me. And one of the things I wanted to ask you both is: is this a causal paper? Or is this a descriptive paper? And would we ever want it to be a causal paper? So, leaving aside the mediation, which clearly is trying to get at mediating effects, but the sort of main analyses are these descriptive. In which case, we wouldn't want to adjust for all kinds of potential confounding factors, or is it? Causal, in which case we do, and then I need sort of a little bit more detail. Did you all have thoughts on, on, by the way, we can answer this question 
specifically about this paper, or we can speak more generally. I mean, when we're when we're looking at relationships between fundamental causes of health, do we do we want to adjust for things that are different between those populations if we think that, you know, essentially those are part of the reasons why there are differences? Now, I suppose if they're confounding, we do, but if they're mediating pathways, we don't. So I'm just curious how you think about it. This is a hard question, and Colette and I are eyeing each other <laughs> to figure out who's going to go first. Good, so I asked the question, so I don't have to answer them. You know, so these authors present both, right? They present both a descriptive analysis of the prevalence of these different endpoints by the different groups. That's one of their early page-long tables. And then they also move into this adjusted, you know, kind of adjusted regression framework where they're trying to get more towards a causal understanding. Where this paper, I think, is really valuable and where research in this domain can be really valuable is trying to unpack, obviously, the impacts of racism on health and to try to disentangle the effect of income and also wealth. I think there were, you know, a number of the variables, specifically country of origin. I was thinking more along the lines as a, you know, a proxy for wealth as compared to income, kind of family wealth and historical wealth and just kind of resource in the family, not so much how much you're making or your parents are making right at that moment in time. And I thought they were taking steps in that direction towards a causal understanding. And I think it's important in this kind of domain to understand, are we really just looking at perceptions? Is, is, is the association between whiteness and, you know, or racism and poor health, is that really driven by perceptions of whiteness in terms of phenotype? Is it, is it driven by what people experience on a day-to-day basis as they walk around in the world? Or is it in part driven by the history of racism that relates to wealth and relates to kind of, you know, educational opportunities and relates to your, your kind of your history bringing you to that moment or some combination of those two? And I think thinking about both of those factors is a really great place and kind of brilliant place to start in thinking about these causal relationships yeah. involving involving race. So I think primarily this was a descriptive paper, but I think they were moving, they were taking steps to yeah. make those causal observations that I think are important and valuable. Yeah, I mean, and I agree with that. I mean, a part of my, part of where I step back from things is I say, okay, we're dealing with cross-sectional data. So immediately I, I start to wonder how much causal inference can you actually do? We have proxy variables, right? They're not actually measuring the things you'd probably want to measure. There looks to be limited ability to, to completely control confounding if you're in a causal context. And yet at the same time, I, I don't know. I'm not totally sure it, it matters in the end because I think, sure, it's cross-sectional, but it, it's hard to come up with a, a particular mechanism. You know, we know the, the exposures came before the outcomes. We, you know, you'd have to come up with a mechanism selection bias to explain that away. The variables are proxies, so they're they're potentially mismeasured, but I can't come up with a way that it would be, well, I suppose it could be differential misclassification, but on average, it's probably more non-differential. So any effects, you know, on average, with some caveats, are probably attenuated. So I don't know. A part of me wonders is I have a lot of concerns, and maybe those concerns really aren't founded. I don't know. Do you have this similar different reactions? Yeah, I mean, to answer your, your question, you had phrased, I mean, I interpret this as a descriptive study and I think it's valuable as one. I think I would agree. it doesn't take anything away from it 
being, you know, by describing it as Not a descriptive study. And I think it's a very interesting topic. I think it's great to see this work done in different contexts as well, obviously being located Agreed. in the U.S., I tend to see more studies in the U.S. context, exactly. so to see this in different contexts, I think, is is a value in and of itself. Now, if it were to move on to a more causal, I think first the question would need to be stated as causal, which I don't interpret this work to have been presented as a causal question particularly, but then if we, I guess, crafted one, right, developed a causal question regarding, I guess, what causes, so I guess, what's the question? Right then. <laughs> so, so this is this is where I was going in our next segment. Like what? So maybe we. I mean, we can sort of transition because this is fairly open ended. Sure. We we want to talk with you about you know disparities research in general. So maybe. So I want to go there. So maybe I could I could sort of ask sure. the bigger picture question first, which is, can you just start off by telling us a little bit about your work in disparities, and then we can kind of jump in with some specific questions that relate to what you just asked? Because I have so many questions. Sure, we can do that. Yeah. So tell us. Tell us about your work. Yeah, so I'm a social and perinatal epidemiologist, and I primarily study the role of social and structural determinants in racial and ethnic disparities in well, perinatal outcomes. Yeah. So using various methodology, obviously our epi methods, and more recently some of our system science methodology as well, to really get at how we would measure some of these things, for example, structural racism, and, and just thinking creatively about, about those kind of things. And so, yeah, that's what I do. Fantastic. And so, so then to go back to, to, to connect it to what we were just talking about, I'm, and you asked the question, but I think I, I would turn it back to you more, just not specifically about this, but more broadly, when you think about studying disparities, I mean, we have so much research documenting disparities, and yet we continue to document disparities over time. COVID, we were back in the position of having to first document the the disparities before it was, you know, able to, before people were ready to jump in and, and try to figure out what to do about it. So when you think about studying disparities, what would you say makes for a good question? I mean, do we think descriptively? Do we think causally? Do we think about mediation? How do you go about that process? And what do you think makes for a good question when it comes to disparities work? Well, I would say all of the above. <laughs> I think they're all interesting to me. They're all interesting. Where you, like you described with COVID, we have to start somewhere, right? Yeah. It's part of the process. And in some work, even when we've been doing it for a while, there's a new question what we're interested in, in a description of a relationship that we haven't reported on yet. So certainly I think all would be valuable. For me personally, I think in this space, what would be nice to see as a next step in either the work that these researchers do or or in mine, is to think more about those mediators, right? So, and also to analytically think about the complexities there. So, at least in the work that I've been thinking about and working on, and others in at least the U.S. context have been uh, publishing work on, and I'd assume in other spaces, because obviously I haven't read in all spaces, right? Sure, I, I, sure. But it's to think about those mediators. What's the relationship between, really, between some of these mediators, some of which they mentioned in this paper, and the exposure, right? So even thinking about that relationship between the perception of whiteness and ethnicity, right? There's, I'd assume, some level of interaction there, right? With regards to how it would affect the outcome. We can think of even, say, maybe employment, right? Opportunities, right? Certainly influenced by one's race ethnicity, but would assume potentially some complex relationships there, right? And how those uh, variables are related to each other. Once you put in the generational aspect and start thinking generationally, right, some of these opportunities are different across generations and what 
there might need to be more complex modeling to factor in the generational piece. So, for example, in I'm thinking about some work that's been done in a perinatal epi looking at health outcomes of individuals depending on how long they've been in a country. So not necessarily, well, and I guess in some respects, generational, but just thinking about the length of time, right, individuals have been in a country and how their outcomes or the risk of having certain outcomes differ depending on the length of time, right? So what we've typically seen, at least in the context of the U.S. and Canadian studies, is that if individuals have arrived more recently, their health outcomes tend to be better than their race-similar counterparts, mm-hmm. right, in, in that particular context. And the longer they've been there, the worse their outcomes tend to be, right? And so there, there's that element of time. And, like, I, I guess the point just being made is that I think they're to get at more causal questions in this space, the methods just get really complicated, complicated. and they just can't be this... They tend not to be <laughs> very simple analytic models to get at that. And I think they shouldn't be because it's a very complex topic. Yeah. So let me probe that a little further because we're spending a lot of time talking about mediation here. And just to make it explicit, presumably, in my understanding, the reason we care about mediation in this case is because you know, here's a space where you can identify disparities. But in order to change the disparities, we need to understand the mechanisms by which you go from from whiteness to some health benefit or deficit, depending on what you find, to understanding the mechanism because that's where we actually want to intervene. Correct. So that makes a lot of sense to me. It becomes, as you say, very complicated because we, you know, let's just be honest, when it comes to observational epidemiology, we we do struggle to get at total effects. So what is the effect of, you know, red meat consumption on on heart attacks, right? We have a hard enough time figuring that out, let alone the you know, in this case, figuring out the mediating pathways, because now you have to deal with not just confounders of the total effect, but confounders of the mediating mm-hmm. effects. You got to have the timing measures right. You got, I mean, so many challenges. But leaving that aside, I do wonder. So you talked about, you know, generational effects, mm-hmm. but I can't, if generation is not something we can intervene mm-hmm. on. So how do we think about things like that, which are clearly important? We can very clearly identify differences in populations. And yet that's not something, not something we can, we could change. So are those, do you have to approach those in a different way? How do we think about those? Yeah, no, certainly we can't intervene on those in any reasonable period of time, right? <laughs> in any ways that we'd be interested in doing. Well, can we, um, so, and right, just to but, clarify, can we intervene yeah. on it at all? I mean, somebody's generation doesn't change, does it? Or no, the generation it? of time, the, the amount of time that they've been in. Oh, space, I see. You see what I'm saying? Because it's like, I'm well, in the country, am I first generation, to... second generation immigrant, third generation, you know. Got it. Yep. No. So we wouldn't, right, necessarily have an intervention designed to address that. Yep. But I think analytically we would, like, if, if that's the time horizon we're interested in, we would need to account for that in some way, assuming that's, right, also under the scope of our research question. Right. Right. But we would need to account for that. And then the question is like, well, how? And in what do, way do we think that operates, right? Because certainly we see differences in general in populations that would otherwise be classified as of the same race, depending on the generation, right? As far as like generation, the first, second, third generation, so on. We see differences there, which likely means their experiences are different. And to, be, to your other point earlier, that we're interested in the mediating factors because that's what we can intervene on. The primary basis for that is that we have already then agreed that the differences observed between the racial and ethnic groups are not biological differences. Therefore, we wouldn't be concerned other than 
on the mechanisms. We're concerned about the mechanisms because really that's what's resulting in the disparities that we're observing. So, yes. So I think that's to your question. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, that's exactly what I'm getting at. I think it's one of those areas that is both extremely important from a public health standpoint that we understand, but also from a method standpoint is really, you know, an interesting area and, and where we come into a lot of interesting discussions and challenges of how we get this right. Because if we, I think you could argue, we don't need the exact right number. We need a number that tells us whether or not a policy intervention is likely to be beneficial. Ideally, we'd like to have the, the exact number, but we never get the exact number with anything, right? But we got to get, we, we have to get the methods right in order to be able to get the right answer. Right. Yeah. And, and it, even with the methods, it's, you know, something I've been thinking about is even when it comes to mediation analyses, it's like, well, what kind of mediation analysis are we doing? So certainly, of course, we need to think about the things that you've talked about being the confounders, right? And particularly if the, these are time varying mediators, like things get really so complicated, now it gets even more complex. Varying, yep. Yes, yep. which maybe I'll come back to that point. But we have to think about all those things, like, you know, the the confounders, but then also even just the assumptions, right? Like, okay, so if we're saying, I think, which is not uncommonly done in mediation analyses, which it would be for one group to essentially assume a comparable distribution of that mediator relative to, like, whatever the reference group is, which tends to be the majority group. In that particular context in the U.S., white populations, and similarly, it seems, in this New Zealand study that we're talking about, but then, it's, you know, the thought experiment then is what, would, what kind of intervention would accomplish those kind of things, right? Looking at data in the U.S. with income disparities, which is typically the data we have. We don't tend to have wealth data in, pop, in public health studies or population. So we go with income. They're quite wide. The disparities in income yep. are, are quite wide, right? And so to essentially then have the distribution of income be comparable between black and white individuals I mean, what scale of intervention are we really talking about? And so is it really just an academic exercise as mm-hmm. well? Like we would need this. Yeah. So I think that's a, a question we need to ask. Because we, 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 we don't think we could ever convince anyone to, could be to, to, to do yeah. this as an interve- a policy intervention, right. say. Right. Okay. Right. It's, it's, but it's something to think about. I think even in, it's not to limit, I think, you know, the models that we run or that kind of thing. But I think it's just something to think about. Right, because that's if that's what we're modeling, how we're modeling the mediator, that's what we're saying, right? We're saying there's an intervention that would accomplish this change mm-hmm. in in the mediator distribution, and therefore, if that was accomplished, this is the narrowing of the disparity that we would observe. And so, just to make that concrete, so to go back to the the paper we were looking at, if we're saying that there are observed differences in ethnicity in terms of a health outcome, and we think that one of the mechanisms is income, then if we could change the income distribution of the populations to be equal, what percentage of the health disparity would go away? Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, to me, that's a, a super interesting question. Hard one to answer. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of it is making those explicit because I don't know that we always make those explicit. We just model it and we report it, but we don't say what we're actually explicitly assuming here. I have a different kind of question Please. for you, if that's okay. So I'm an environmental epidemiologist. We think a lot about exposures and there's been so much conversation in my department lately. And I'm sure our, especially our student listeners are, are interested in when you think about racism in the context of your research, how do you define that in terms of variables? What variables do you mm. use to define experiences of racism? I think there are 
you know, we were talking a few episodes ago with John Jay, who was talking about redlining, for example, as kind of as an example in the U.S. of a form of structural racism. We've talked about measures of deprivation, of economic deprivation in the context of residential segregation specifically. And then there's these individual level experiences of, of whiteness or, or racialization. Mm -hmm. And I was interested for in, in your work, how you characterize racism, what are the variables that you use? How do you quote unquote measure it for as, as a part of a research question? Yeah, great question. Well, difficult. <laughs> we <laughs> difficult don't know the answers, right? we're asking you. <laughs> right, so we're, well, you know, at least think about them just in the same way that mm -hmm. you're, you're thinking about them. And considering going forward, what would I do? What have I done? You know, what could we do better, as many of us in this area are thinking about? And certainly, you know, racial residential segregation has been a measure of structural racism that has a long, a long history, right? And I would say... I mean, there's certainly other neighborhood, as we call it, neighborhood level metrics, uh, including, so there's the, the income inequality, so on and so forth, social cohesion that has ties to, you know, racism or racial, racialized experiences. And so some are explicitly clear, I suppose, like you might think of racial residential segregation, that's clearly looking at differences in where individuals are living on the basis of race. But the assumption there is that that's influenced by policies, right? Okay. The policies are shaping where people can and cannot live, right? A part of where people live is by choice, but a large part, at least in the, hist in, in the U.S., is, is not only by choice, right? So there's certain influences there. And I think also those same or other policies and decisions that are, that are made also determine the dynamics of the neighborhoods, right? Are they cohesive? Are they not? What resources are available? Is there investment? Is there disinvestment in areas? What decisions are made about what resources enter or exit the neighborhoods on the basis of the composition of the neighborhood, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So not all, all of them are explicitly race. They, might, they, they don't all on the face of it appear to be specifically targeting race. But then when you start to think about them and how these decisions are made, you realize that there is that component, that underlying characteristic of them. Um, and certainly decisions are made on the basis of individuals and where they live and who the populations are that benefit. And I think part of it gets complicated when you think over time, mm. right? Because there's this, and this is something I think about a lot methodologically, it's complicated. It's really <laughs> so complicated. Still to be determined about how this might look in some of my modeling work is you know, the area, so this is just even just limiting the discussion to neighborhoods or where we live after you've determined what constitutes a neighborhood. Another it's question. Another <laughs> but even in that, it's like neighborhoods change, right, over time. And so, you know, I talked about investment and disinvestment, but even when we think about what that experience looks like at the neighborhood level today, that experience is different potentially five years from now. Right, either because the neighborhood has changed, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. assuming I still live there, or I have moved and my neighborhood experience has changed because of where I moved, but all neighborhoods change in some way, right? And so how do we characterize the experience of, in this case, structural racism when there's this element of dynamic, there's change, there's dynamics, and decisions are made to influence the change and in response to the change that's observed in the neighborhood. 
So I haven't done much work to answer your question about interpersonal racism. Personally, I've, I've focused largely on social and structural determinants, including structural racism. And so that's mostly what I could speak to. But, but certainly I think it would encompass not only the characteristics of the residential area, but also then more the policies, the decisions. And really when we're thinking about structural racism, a part that I think is left out is how each of the, I guess, the social sectors that we interact with, one of them being residents, but also then being the workforce, right, being education, so on and so forth, how all of those are interrelated. Do we study how they're interrelated? Do we study how they respond to each other? Right. And then also, do we study how they shape our beliefs, our values? Because that's part of the definition of structural racism, right? Is that it's all of those, this discrimination in each, each of those sectors and how they shape beliefs, values, and also the, the distribution of resources. That's part of the definition, but. That's fascinating. Thank you so much. I was going to ask you one additional question, um, which it just, I'm, I was thinking of as, you know, thinking about your perinatal research too. Do you think about racism as an epigenetic exposure or as the consequence of epigenetic change? I mean, it's interesting can, to can think about. Can you define that just sure, for, no, for those who are... Sure. No, I'm thinking about environmental factors that change our DNA and thinking about, especially, you know, especially in the context of perinatal research where you have moms and you have babies in utero and, you know, the, to the extent that the mom's experience in the world affects the child's life while the child is in utero and that those, you know, that, that social experience of racism then can program the child to have a different set of experiences. And if the mother had not had, you know, potentially those social experiences. And I was interested in your thoughts on that in terms of if there is any evidence that you're aware of that looks at, you know, kind of racism as an epigenetic factor. Yeah, that's a great question. So actually, interestingly, a couple of years back, I was doing some looking into epigenetics, yeah. so to speak, right? Primarily, it was shaped by my interest in like this generational, what this generational transmission of risk for poor birth outcomes, mm -hmm. looking to understand that. But certainly there's, uh, at least I'm aware of one paper that I found at the time that was looking at essentially this in the area of structural racism. I wouldn't say necessarily that structural racism per se and epigenetic or epigenetic responses. Do I, right to your question, do I believe that structural racism essentially can result in epigenetic changes that would have relevance for perinatal health outcomes? A very good question. <laughs> I don't know the answer. I mean, if, I mean, does I think that mean you don't, you don't, you're noncommittal on the answer? <laughs> no, I think I've thought about it, and I do think, I think it's possible. The thing mm -hmm. is, I haven't done work yeah. in it, and because it's been a couple of years since I looked it up, I don't know what has been written on it, you know, since then. I know so obviously I don't, want, I don't want to yeah. speak, yeah. you know, I don't want to speak incorrectly about, you know, people that are currently doing work there, but certainly at least there's this thought and I'm not sure who, who is writing on this exactly, but that essentially there, the thought process is that we would respond in ways biologically to, to support, I mean, obviously longevity of like yeah. the race, the species and so on. So there might be responses to the environment that we're in that could result in influencing, right? The timing of delivery, for example. And, and, and so I think it's reasonable to assume that that could be, but I, say that I can speak to. No, thank you. It's very interesting. It's there. something new. It's something that I was just thinking of in hearing you speak and knowing your research on, you know, in, in perinatal and reproductive yeah. 
spheres, I mean, there's, there's certainly evidence that intensified stress can cause epigenetic mm-hmm. change. Mm-hmm. And you wonder about kind of large structural experiences with discrimination and inequity. And we had talked, I mean, we've talked on, we've talked on the podcast too, about how birth outcomes specifically can set up, are, are particularly relevant because they can have all of these lifetime consequences. And so the mom's experience is particularly important. So thank you for sharing. It's a very interesting to think about. It's a great question. Yeah. I had a better answer. Yeah, no. <laughs> we invite people on to give us their best understanding. We understand that everyone knows we don't, the answer we don't to all know, the we questions. Don't know very much. We That's <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, we that was absolutely fascinating. We do need to move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And Jess and I both have something, I believe. Jess, what do you got for us? Sure. I have I have two articles thematically associated with research, uh, perinatal research and research on children um, that, caught, <laughs> that, that, that caught my eye in the last week, in, in part because they're a little bit funny as a parent to hear some of the headlines. Um, but here, so, so the, this is an article that was published a couple of days ago in the journal Current Biology. Okay. And the headline, the, the title is A Method to Soothe and Promote Sleep in Crying Infants Utilizing the Transport Response. And so the transport response is basically carrying what the you, baby. What are your kids in the, the car? Baby, carrying the baby in your arms. Okay. And, I feel like cars and I, are this is this is kind of <laughs> and so the highlights, the, the kind of key points highlights infant cry is attenuated by transport, but not by motionless holding. <laughs> Which means that infant cry is attenuated by transport, but not by motionless holding. So you have to be so moving. To, if you're just sitting still. The infant cry is not going to be attenuated. They're going to continue to scream if you don't move. But then if you move, the baby might try to stop crying or the, the baby might start to stop crying. And so what these researchers did, which I love, is they, they they ran a series of experiments with crying babies to try to see what combination of activities is most likely to make the baby fall asleep. And so they ended up, you know, they said, if you hold the baby still for five minutes, if you stand up for five minutes, if you kind of walk with them in a jostling way for a few minutes and then okay, lay them wish, down I and walk away. Video here, you can see you pretending to rock a baby. I I think about this because I have a an almost three year old, and he's been screaming a lot lately, and so this is why this caught my this caught my eye. So what they figured out after all of these series of experiments, the best approach to soothe a calming baby is five minutes of transport, quote unquote transport, transport, which means holding the baby, okay, and then lay that baby down after five minutes for five to eight minutes before walking away. And this was what they determined Wait, to be sorry, the best. Wait, sorry, laid it down on the ground or on the... <laughs> in a cot. They have, oh, they have a, they just, had a series of, okay, a series really of receptacles for the baby. Um, one, like a bouncer chair or like a little baby, like, yeah. a, like a, little, a little bed. And so they had all these combinations of walking, holding, laying the baby in a cot, laying the baby on a bouncy chair, and then sitting still. And so they determined five minutes of walking, followed by five to eight minutes of laying the baby down gently before the mother walks away was the optimal way to make a baby stop crying. And so this is one of these things that as parents, like you're just doing on trial and error, you're like, maybe if I bounce the baby a little bit, or if I walk back and forth, or if I rock the baby, or if if I kind of burp the baby, you know, you're trying all these things. And so this is actually... Something that people did. Okay, but wait a minute. So all all three of us in the room had or have small kids. Yes. Does we need Mm. to ground truth this? Is this is this accurate to your experience? Too like you're like five minutes. Got to put you down. (laughs) Got to put you down. I mean, I would personally say, assuming I understood the experiment protocol correctly, (laughs) did these babies sign consent? (laughs) Well, that's another question. But certainly, I think. The five to eight minutes uh-huh. wherein you're standing, 
next to said cot mm-hmm. where the baby can, I, I assume, see you. Right. Or you're kind of like touching the baby. Would not work like, for my children. Would have not worked for my children. <laughs> because they... If I'm because they want you to be holding yes. them, right, of if course. you're there, oh, like what's your sure. purpose? Right. Why, like, why, why, your purpose? Why, why, why are you not what holding me? Why am I, why am I yes. in this little chair? My right. kids still have not work. They're in college. What is your purpose? No. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Would it have worked for you? I don't know the answer to that because it's been a long time since yeah. I had little ones. I, but I think yeah, I think it might have worked. I don't know. I feel like there was never one answer. Like you'd figure right. something out that worked and then it would stop working. Well, because the later. baby was kind of on to you, right? They're yeah. like, oh, I mean, that's always with my kids <laughs> they're where they're like, smart. you think this is, you think five yeah. minutes is going to maybe yeah. it worked once, but doesn't mean it's going to yeah. work tonight. Yeah. Mom, I'm going to make it really, be really loud. Right, yep. right, right. And this was paired with a second article that I saw about nap transitions, which I thought was pretty interesting too, because my, my little guy is just mm. at that process of transitioning out of needing a nap, but he's not quite there yet. And so there is the sense that like nap transition, you know, when do kids stop napping altogether? And, you know, for parents, it typically causes about a year of stress as your kid is like kind of transitioning, but like kind of still needs to nap and kind of doesn't need to nap and doesn't want to nap. And you're fighting with them for about a year. That's been my experience. And so what this other paper showed was they were looking at brain development and development of the hippocampus, that dropping that final nap was associated with some more elevated state in hippocampal development, meaning, so, meaning it, that it was it was tied. The nap caused no, the, the, the other way around. You have the development, the, and then you stop. You have napping. the development, and mm. then you stop napping. And so the idea that there should be like a structured time of like at a certain in a certain preschool, kids don't nap after age four or whatever it is. That it was very individual and kind of tied mm. to brain development, which I thought was interesting too. So does yeah, that, does it go in the reverse direction? Mm-hmm. Like is my, is my hippocampus shrinking because I want to nap all the time now? <laughs> they were saying, these authors were saying that napping in young, in young kids is very tied to memory specifically, but memory and learning. And so kids who drop the nap and still need yeah. to nap, mm-hmm. it's, it, it affects their memory and learning at, in those oh, early okay. ages. So, so those are my two kind of early wow. childhood pieces from the last couple of weeks, but I loved the transport response. In particular, the maternal think, transport response. <laughs> I still think we need to check out the effect of putting the kid in the car. That, to me, was yes. always the most effective. Fail safe. All right. So I have a, a, a short one uh, from Scientific Reports, Nature Research, which is an article entitled The Wasted Chewing Gum Bacteriome. Mm-hmm. So this is a study in which you can guess from the title. Yeah. They went out and found gum that had been... Oh, they found it. Oh, they actually—they didn't just collect it from people. They like scraped it off. The scraped ground. off the ground. In fact, they also did experiments where they chewed it and then left it out because they specifically wanted to know how long does the bacteria from your mouth and your DNA get into the gum and then last there on the ground. Like, so could you do forensic analysis on it? You know, after it had been sitting on the concrete two weeks later, I barely understood what they actually you know did found <laughs> in terms of, but but basically. You know, it, much of this lasts quite a while. And so if you are spitting your gum out onto the ground, you are essentially leaving a trace of your biome. And this would be a uh. potential source for studies, but also, you know, DNA analysis, forensic stuff. A lot of interesting facts in here, though, which I didn't know. So first, the first modern chewing gum was introduced to the market in the 19th century. And... It's estimated that Iran and Saudi Arabia are the countries with the highest chewing gum consumption, where 80% of the population are regular chewing gum consumers. Mm. 
And the value of the chewing gum trade is estimated more than 30 billion U.S. dollars in 2019. So lots of really. Wow. That's you know, a lot of gum. It's, it's a big a market. But the point is, I read a study like that. And then my immediate thought is, who is the person who says, yeah, I want to be the research assistant who has to go around and find gum sitting on the ground and scrape it up and keep it? Do you think it's a choice or do you think it's a some research assistant low in the hierarchy? Like, I have a job for you this week. You're I, going to, to go scrape some gum. That's a really good question. I do not I know the know. answer to that. But, and I'm not going mm-hmm. to go into details, mm-hmm. but I know of a study that was conducted in, I'm going to say is roughly the 90s, in which what the research had, assistants had to do was, I, when I heard this, I thought, I am so glad that all mm-hmm. I ever did was, was data analysis mm-hmm. and data collection mm-hmm. and not sample collection. Uh, yeah. I just think you got to have a good constitution to be able to do these things. I could do it. Uh, I, I, I ha- well, I, I wonder as well. So with the gum collection, <laughs> how, how would they separate bacteria from other sources? Right, so you you apply like that. You, well, what are we thinking? Fair enough. That's I hadn't true. Thought about like, yeah, I hadn't like thought wild about come over to it. But certainly, you could adhere the gum to a trash can. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know the answer to that, but I think I have to believe. So what they they talked about the components of gum and how what ends up on the surface would be very different from what ends up in the middle okay. of the gum, and so mm. I think that's sort of how you you can figure it out. And they were saying, like, in some ways, it's you've got this medium that is designed to encapsulate these bacteria, but whether or not they survive is a different question, but they like, they kind of get pushed it. I don't know. Masticated. I don't like that word, but like chewed up and. uh, It's almost mm. like some sort of core sample where it's less likely. Right. Borrowing. Oh, they actually, they, they talked about that too. Like, like layers over time and how deep it in and the, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I, I, yeah, I'm not doing that job. (laughs) Just saying, I'm not doing that job. All right. Well, we have reached the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you could tweet us at, at PopHealthEx, or you could tweet me at, at ProfMattFox or anyone else. At, do you have a Twitter yet? I do. I do. It's just at Jessica Liebler. I just don't remember the password, but it's it's there. I know. <laughs> I, I, I know. Do I don't, do you have a, are you on the Twitters? I'm Twitter. on the Twitters. Um, my Twitter handle is at Colette Mube. There you go. And you can also find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast. Nick Guler for sound editing and heat control. And Mark Takakchi for editing, uh, helping Nick with the editing. We especially want to thank our guest, Dr. Colette Nkube, for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Colette. Thanks for having me. And we hope you will... Download our next episode. <laughs>